0: Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Witt here. A couple of things before we get into this episode. At one point in the episode I say something about the fact that Doctor Who has not really done Christmas specials until the modern era, forgetting that it was the Doctor Who production team that inflicted upon us K9 and Company as Christmas special. So I apologize in advance for that. And by the way, speaking of inflicting *Canine and company upon you, that was novelized by Target. So yes, when we get there, if we get there, we will indeed be doing *Canine and company. Also, there's a long discussion about where Stephen is from, what time period. And then as part of that discussion, we also discuss where Vicky is from. And I quite stupidly said I wasn't sure where she's from. It's pretty well established that she is from the 25th century, the late 25th century, but Stephen's time period is not all that nailed down because the audios give his date of birth anywhere from the 24th to the 27th century, and even as far as the 28th century. So it's not our problem. It's Big Finish's problem. Get it together, guys. Seriously. Anyway, just so you know, there is a very extensive and very serious discussion of rape in this episode, so if that's not your cup of tea, you may want to skip this one. Otherwise, enjoy! Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the momentous task of discussing in-story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a momentous three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me... There's also our intermediate-level fan who has seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's none other than The Worthy Dalton Hughes. Hi. It is also his birthday today. Yeah,
1: I leveled up. He leveled
0: up. And we had cake, and he got a prize and a present or whatever people get on their birthdays and everything, and now he's older, though not nearly as old as I am. And no one is, Joni. Well, thank you so much. And finally, we have our ever-so-thoughtful novice fan who has seen little to none of the original series because she was barely a fetus at the time and has not previously read any of the books because she just learned how to read, except for the ones we've done for this podcast. They had to come in threes. And this time around, it's the wise (coughs) and witty, sometimes, Alison Fritz-Saffried. Hello, Alison. This cake is delicious. Yes, I'm sure
2: it is. You've had so
0: many birthdays, Tony. I bet you've had a lot
2: of cake in your life.
0: Yes. Well, before we get to talking about this book... I'm
2: going to leave a phone number where you can report uh, where you found my remains to my next of kin after yeah, the podcast. but
0: remember that I'm the one editing, so I'll take the phone <laughs> number right back <laughs> out again. Let's remind listeners of our new Patreon page, shall we? Available at https uh, colon forward slash forward slash patreon.com forward slash BC, depending on the amount you give per month. You'll receive a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book. We know you all have them. You keep telling me this. I keep ignoring it. I keep trying to send them to you. Why do you do this to me? The return postage is killing me. As a gift for supporting us. Just to say thank you for being willing... That was all parenthetical. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. Please check out the page when you can. So far we only have the one patron, but we love him. And hopefully there will be others soon. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Once again, we continue that long run of Hartnell stories novelized in the 1980s because they ran out of stories <laughs> to discuss Nigel Robinson's novelization of Dennis Spooner's script for the 17th Doctor Who story, The Time Meddler. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Time Traveler, adapted by Nigel Robinson from the Dennis Spooner script that aired from 7365 to 72465. Published by Target Books in March 1988, as of this recording in September of 2017, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged BBC audiobook, 141 pages. Wow. We've talked about Nigel Robinson extensively, or rather, Dalton and I have. We have. Allison I has not actually read anything by I Nigel do, Robinson. I have not, no. You have not. So you'll have to go back and listen to episode three, Edge of Destruction, oh. like, our our listeners will, but basically Nigel Robinson was the former editor of the range, but by the time he wrote this, he wasn't. The main thing to note about this book is that it is his penultimate Doctor Who novelization, which will be followed by the Patrick Troughton story, The Underwater Menace. Man, could that boy pick him. He just got some of the shittiest stories to have to novelize and, well, with, you know...
2: But not knowing that story, I assume it's about Dennis Eminus and scuba gear, and I'm kind of excited for yes, it. Yes,
0: and you would be wrong. <laughs> it is. would about, not
2: be the first time. It's
0: about people. No. Yeah. And that's all I'm going to say about it right now, because we've cut a year and a half before we get there, so let's try to enjoy the year and a half we have before we get <laughs> to that story, shall we? He
1: that wrote, bad, huh?
0: It's that bad. It's okay. almost as bad as the uh, <clears throat> next one we're going to do. He wrote this one after leaving the role of editor of the Target range in April of 1987, and it came out the same year as Edge of Destruction, which came out in October of 1988. The Target book, That Venerable Guide to All Things Target, written by David J. Howe, who now knows who we are, but I don't think he's listened to the show yet. But he
2: doesn't know where we
1: live.
0: He doesn't know where we live yet, and that's fine. Um, We normally check that book for first reactions to the books when they came out from the contemporary press, but it it doesn't actually mention this one making much of an impact. In fact, there's nothing about it. Well, we'll talk about that. Hmm. It's odd, given that the televised story made several impacts, both on and off screen. On screen, we were treated to our first indication that the Doctor was not the only time traveler from his planet zooming around out there. We got our first story with a new male companion, Stephen Taylor. Woohoo. We found out last time that Trey Corte really has a thing for Stephen Taylor. Mm-hmm. I can
2: appreciate that.
0: Yeah, you've seen a picture of him now by now, right? I,
2: if so, I do not recall it.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he, is, he is quite cute. And we got our first pseudo-historical story in which a historical plot is overlaid with science fiction elements, which indeed would soon become the only sort of historical the Doctor Who would ever end up doing after 1967. Historical stories don't mix well with ratings, basically. Learn? Yeah. Learn on TV? Never. (laughs) Never. Tiss, tiss. That's why Captain Kangaroo is dead. No, Whoa, what? no, no, no. Well, he is dead. Did you not know? I oh, did. I'm so I sorry. didn't news. <laughs> I know you're young and you don't really follow the news like that because it's adult. But I'm so sorry you didn't know. When I'm
2: young enough. I was around for the Captain Cap- uh, Kangaroo reboot in the early '90s. Is oh I remember, my or the god! The late '80s. No wonder you have so no. I soul. Will remember an elderly <laughs> captain.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, that's. I didn't know
2: he was killed by <laughs> Doctor Who fans who didn't like historical stories. That was new to me. I thought he had a heart attack.
0: Is that how you interpreted that?
2: I guess I misinterpreted that, yes.
0: Well, if you think of a bunch of Doctor <laughs> Who fans coming running at you with, in cosplay, that would cause a heart attack. Yes, yes. Yeah, that would probably do it. It's also the second season finale, by the way, this story that we're talking about. Behind the scenes, John Wiles took over full duties as producer, following in the steps of Verity Lambert. This replacement followed by Wiles' own replacement by Amish Lloyd halfway through this uh, season three. Would cause an entire chain of tensions between the production team and Liam Hartnell that, coupled with Hartnell's health, would lead the actor to leave the series after a third full season and two episodes of season four. Which means we're at the end of season two. This is how season hmm. two ends. And starting with our next time, we're on to season three.
2: Rather a bigger splash at the end than at the beginning.
0: Yeah. And sadly, season three is going to be much the same way. In fact, well, I, I'm i giving too much away. You'll see. God will you see. And all I can say is I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm oh so sorry to you, dear listeners, as well. But right now we're talking about the Time Meddler, so we're still happy, right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the Time Meddler. So, uh, the blurb. Where's the book? There's the book. The book. When the TARDIS materializes on an apparently deserted Northumbrian beach, Stephen disputes the Doctor's claim that they have traveled back to the 11th century. Ooh. The discovery of a modern wristwatch in a nearby forest merely reinforces his opinion. But it is 1066, the most important date in English history. Well, yeah. And the Doctor's arrival has not gone unnoticed, observing the appearance. Pardon me. Your cake really was good. (laughs) <laughs> Observing the appearance of the TARDIS is a mysterious monk who recognizes the time machine for what it is. He also knows that the doctor poses a serious threat to his master plan. A plan which, if successful, could alter the future of the entire world. For once the blurb has it right. Kinda yes. happy with this blurb. Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: But yeah. it's not it doesn't give away every detail of the plot. It does somehow. not.
0: Here is the book, which is an actually very nice cover, except mm-hmm. The time meddler, the monk, doesn't look anything like he does on screen. He looks much more monkish on screen, in fact, but you get that nice little bit mm-hmm. of the wristwatch because the uh, artist, I believe it's Alistair Pearson at this point, is very good about little telling details yes, like definitely. that. Just a little nugget. little
1: glint of steel. Yeah. Just a little, little glint.
0: So, first impressions
2: Overall. I enjoyed this one almost as much as the last one. But I also studied gender and religion in graduate school, and boy, do I have a bone or three to pick with this guy. (laughs) So so actually, combination of uh, quite positive and um, what in the world are you doing here?
0: With Robinson or with the original screenwriter?
2: uh, With Robinson, I haven't seen the original episode or read that script, so I don't know what the differences are. Okay. So I don't know... Yes, what, what is improvement and what is worsening and what is leaving mm. things the same. And
0: I'm betting we're talking about the elephant in the room, namely the rape of Edith by the Vikings. We're
2: talking about several things with Edith. Yeah. But I don't want to jump into them necessarily right away because, overall, I actually thought it was one of the more pleasant reads and one of the better paced stories that mm. I've read from this series. Much like the the last one, okay. I thought, thought it was very well paced. It had a complete lack of pretentiousness in language uh, and there, there, some of the pretentious ones I've really enjoyed let me say right. yeah but, <laughs> yes. but there there is there is no attempt to show off here it's um I thought it was very well paced in that there's no self-indulgent lingering right. over different
0: points I could say that okay so. Dalton how about you first impressions
1: uh, I really enjoyed the pacing the way it just kind of effortlessly flowed back and forth between the different characters and what was happening in the story um <laughs> yeah i feel like the tone's a little dark a little compared to some of the other ones we've read but i i like dark things i like like the reality of it i mean there's there's a lot of reality there um so i feel like the tone really like gets that Mm -hmm. um
2: and yet i really enjoyed get into more details of this the characterizations of the monk who in my mind, having not seen the actual actor is the Grim Reaper is portrayed on Animaniacs. <laughs> In terms of the kind of scrapes that he gets into. Oh wow. The dark, baleful figure who's practically prep falling about the place. Right. There's a little humor playing. Yeah. Played. Mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, most yeah. of most of the content about the Muck, I really enjoy. hmm
0: Yeah. And that makes sense, given that the um, a very famous British character actor known for comedy named Peter Butterworth played the monk.
1: That's a
0: good name. Yeah, it is. It is. It works for him. Um, <clears throat> he probably looks quite different than you're thinking, <clears throat> but he also, yeah, it's basically this guy who's, well, how would you describe him? Is the monk truly evil, or is he just completely misinformed? Has he just not thought it through, basically? I thought
1: it's just hubris rather than evil. Oh, really? He just hasn't thought this through. Mm-hmm. I, I felt it, and then in the end I felt like it was like it's going to amplify now. Mm-hmm. Like it's... The Doctor doing this to him is going to make him come back bigger and stronger and badder than ever. Um, Interesting you should say that. <clears throat> which, I mean, having seen the newer series, I I have ideas in my head of where this is going. Or at least where this
0: could lead. Where it could lead, true.
1: Um, I don't know if I'm true in that feeling, but...
2: Is he a character we're going to
0: see again? Like, is this the Master? Or well,
1: is this since you asked me. Um, <laughs> That's what because, I'm getting at, Tony. Yeah. Is this the Master, is, or is this... It is not the Master. <laughs> <Okay. clears
0: throat> that that actually has been asked before. The Monk and the Master are two different characters.
1: By <clears throat> similar...
0: Similar, except ways. the Master really is much more chaotic evil, yeah. whereas yes. this is more...
2: When he states his mission it was far more benevolent than something yeah. that we yeah. from the modern master.
0: He thinks he's doing a good thing. Yeah. Except it isn't. He just hasn't thought it through. So Chaotic neutral, maybe? maybe. I don't know. Yeah. If we're talking those terms. He does come back, I'm not gonna tell you when. Okay. Except to say that he will come back for one more story, of which he is not the main character. But we will we will encounter him again. Well, Allison and I may encounter him again. He doesn't
2: like that.
0: No, it's not that. I'm not sure. It's that. It no, story no. Come no, on, gonna... not you. <laughs> it, it's 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 the book that we're going to be reading at the convention if we get to go to the convention.
1: Gotcha.
0: Yeah, so we'll give that to you anyway.
1: I mean, I'll still read it. Yeah. Maybe I can like uh, phone in.
0: Now that would be nice. I I would love it if we could do a, like a Skype thing. Mm. That would be interesting. Yeah. If we can arrange It's not an assessment it. of quality. <clears throat> I'll
1: just phone it in. This is phone <laughs> it.
0: Yes, it's not, yeah. no, it's not an assessment of quality. Literally phoning it. But we will make jokes about it anyway. Well, you know. But yeah, it's it's in the Daleks' master plan. He okay. comes back for about three episodes. It's kind of their, uh, their puppet. Hmm. They're the ones that rescue him, I believe. But yeah, so there's that. And then we never see him again, except in the comic strips, which is kind of funny. But yeah, so the monk... Uh, it's kind of a shame the monk doesn't come back because by the time we get to the 70s we meet lots of time lords and it's a shame they don't bring him back except I, I think they thought well, the actors passed on so maybe we shouldn't but he's a time lord, they regenerate. Right. So, uh. Uh,
1: Just, come on. You have the answer right in front of your face.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly.
1: Plus it seems like they're, they're not against bringing back lots of other characters they've had or no. ideas they've had. So. I
0: could see Chris Chibnall doing it for the new series because the monk might be a really good foil for Jodie Whittaker. Mm. That would be interesting. Yeah,
2: That's a good modern character. You know, sort of a, and with all the religious references they had, this isn't colonial era, but sort of, you know, colonial era missionary going to bring civilization right. to all these other places. I'm going to fix you know, Middle Ages Europe, and it's
0: not going to work out the way you plan. Oh, wow. That could be interesting. Chris Chibnall, we want our cut of it, <clears throat> if you decide to do this.
1: <laughs> or, you know, that, that that quote, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. He's not the power, but he doesn't quite get the responsibility. <laughs> no, he's yet, no Peter so, Parker. No. Which is kind of weird saying, but it's, just, it's, it's true. Know. He's no Peter yeah, Parker. So it's, it's the
2: story that story has been done over and over i'm going to go back and change history for the better but only right. Except- a- another one hour episode would bear it, it doesn't have to be a-, a trilogy of films
0: no certainly not so where do we go from here on this one <laughs> where do you want to start because there's a lot to talk about
2: that was interesting started with what seemed to me it. 2001 reference. Yes, They literally refer to the TARDIS as looking like a monolith, and then talk about alien worlds, a guy running around in a spacesuit. I thought that was... Okay, so there was a little bit of pretentiousness in the book, but but no, but it worked for setting the sort of story they were going to do, even though the tone's a lot different than 2001. Time-traveling element. Well, no, never mind. You can delete that on editing, because I didn't have anywhere to go with that sentence at all.
0: Which means I'm going to leave it in, of course. Because I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting idea I expected
2: it to go somewhere and it really was got picked up later.
0: What was Oh, the um, the pretentiousness at the beginning.
2: Well, it's the two thousand one reference. Oh. Because the the TARDIS is described as looking like a monolith, which is quite a word to drop in this context. That's a point. We have this primitive environment that Stevens running around in. It's a jungle, but it's also an alien world. These right. sort of plants that have their own locomotion, and yet, above him, there's this very advanced, complex city. Mm-hmm. There are all these 2001 elements, but then that's not really picked up again in terms of tone or yeah. theme, it seems
0: like. I think the main reason he does that, and that's only in the prologue, so. is because this book came out more than a year before The Chase did. So he's writing the end scene of the chase before John Peel gets a crack at it. So if any anything, John Peel has to catch up with what Robinson's done here. So I think it may just be a matter of Robinson establishing that to Stephen, the TARDIS is gonna look something unearthly.
2: Yes. Yeah. But that wasn't how the TARDIS interacted with the Saxons, for example, in the Vikings. No. It was just for that one person.
0: Right. <clears throat> Mainly because it doesn't happen on screen. And, well, for that matter, Stephen never sees the TARDIS on screen. He just ends up inside it. Somehow. Yes. John Peel left some room in his story for that to happen. Here, there's no room for it. It's just Stephen goes to the TARDIS and it's open and he falls in. Yeah. With a suddenly disappearing panda bear. I'm still upset about this. I really am. I'm upset that Hi-Fi is not in this book except for that one line and it's like he suddenly appeared just to be on the chair for the Doctor to note and then he's gone, just like he is from the series. <laughs> They're feel, both looking at me like crazy. I feel like like I I'm should crazy. play Taps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe hi-fi. I'll, maybe I'll pipe that in. Maybe
1: we're, Mourn.
0: we're mourning Hi-Fi. Well,
1: it's especially weird because you, you mentioned last time about the panda that it wasn't in the book. No. The last book we read. It's in this one, mentioned once. Yes. And then not again at all. So Neither like, of them why? seems
0: to think it's a major pl- point. It isn't. It really isn't. I mean, for this story, seriously, the only reason that panda bear is there is for that lovely line that the doctor has Yonder is the vertical hold, and there's a chair with a panda on it. Sheer poetry, dear boy. <laughs> it's yeah. a lovely line, and Hartnell does the best job with it. But, yeah, I think they both have decided it's not about the panda. Not about the panda.
1: Yeah. And I mean, really, and, and I guess the show would be more of just like a plot device. Yeah. Why would Steven run back in to be left behind? Exactly. Because he has to go get his fucking pain. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like. yeah. And I think we established that John Peel came up with much better rationale for the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it works much better in that story. In the story. In yeah. the book. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, it's got that. You're right. The tone. The tone of this book. Yeah. <sighs> Let's talk about the tone of this book, shall we? Because Dennis Spooner's original script is noteworthy for being very comedic, but it has a rape in it.
2: A Viking gang rape.
0: A Viking gang rape. There's no two bones about that. In fact, it's almost more horrific to watch it on screen because, well, you don't get to see it, obviously, but you see the aftermath of it because Edith is lying on the ground with her eyes wide open at first. A viewer first seeing it for the first time would think, Oh my God! They killed her. She's dead. She's not dead. She's just in a catatonic state. Yeah, which
2: definitely came across in the book that yeah. there's definitely, she definitely experiences tremendous trauma, which you can portray, but then you can't play it off for laughs. That so the doctor's like, "Oh, can I have another glass of mead or something?" Yeah. That haha, poor doctor. He's kind of bruff and insensitive, and he doesn't exactly. recognize when someone is exhibiting signs of PTSD yes. and it's kind of staring into space. It yeah. was a very odd kind of play for last, but then it's not actually committed to well, as a full joke. I think there was some pang mm-hmm. of conscience there, pulling there back too much and making it a joke that, haha, the doctor is rude to children on the street, and also he's yes. completely insensitive But to he also right
0: notices that something is wrong, but he doesn't quite have yeah. the vocab for it, maybe, or has no sense I think that's what it comes down to. He has no real sense of humanity to know exactly what's happened there. But
2: it's very different than when he's just being a jerk to Ian. Yeah. Darker element than maybe was intended that he would be that uncomprehending of someone else's distress that is that obvious.
0: Yeah. Except on screen it's not that obvious either, and I think that may be the problem. The original script doesn't make a lot of room for it. It just has the rape off screen and then off we go. And she's fine afterwards. And you think, okay, sure, it's 1966. Their attitude towards rape at this point in popular culture might be, eh, slap a Band-Aid on it, you're fine, emotionally. And yet it's not that at all. And it's never been that, even in 1066. And you have to wonder i think nigel robinson is doing the best he can with something really uncomfortable
2: well, it wasn't it wasn't a slapstick portrayal of rape exactly no, it was no. more it was described in quite menacing terms, and right after that we have the next most violent thing in the book which is a description of one of the viking's wounds they talk about blood and gore oh, yeah. being stomach churning mm-hmm. it's more the follow-up mm-hmm. on it that it's it's described as quite serious and violent, and then, ha ha, the doctor doesn't realize
0: anything's wrong. Except that he kind of does subconsciously, mm-hmm. which is more than he does on screen. Mm-hmm. And it's more than she gives him on screen, because there isn't much of a reaction on her part. Personally, Edith on the page is much more fleshed out. That even though the actress who portrayed her was really quite good, um, <clears throat> it's hard to PTSD in an age that doesn't recognize the term PTSD?
2: That was an era though when people recognized the concept of shell shock, for example. But they wouldn't
0: have attributed it to rape necessarily.
2: uh, There's definitely the concept in Victorian literature of the sort of catatonic Broken woman who has had some kind of horrible traumatic experience. That's true. And is sort of half there. That's true. They sort of play with that a bit in this book, minutes it's it isn't really. It doesn't really allow a consistent characterization of the aftermath for her. No. Because the <clears throat> the only part that I thought was really odious in the aftermath is it's implied that cooking for and serving the doctors would help her get past. Right. That was fairly odious, whereas yeah. I think that her going back and forth and seeming blatantly to be slightly detached from reality afterwards as a defense mechanism and later trying to play up to this person. She's only met once or twice. Oh, I'm fine. Things are okay. Mm-hmm. I think that actually can work, but the idea that she is healed through serving
0: was pretty ugly. I didn't get that, but I could see where that could be an interpretation of it, too. And that would be, yeah, that would be difficult to take. Unfortunately, that's kind of what the original script gives him to work with, and he he's doing a really delicate balancing act there, I think, because not only is he being asked to, in essence, depict the first rape victim in Doctor Who, and I'm trying to remember, possibly the Lupin. It's difficult to do so when it's a children's show where that shouldn't be there anyway. It's a classic sort of women in
2: refrigerators canary. 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 <laughs> a scenario of the coal mine, if you will. <laughs> a no, scenario wherein a female character is subjected to rape or assault or murder, not to develop her character, but to develop the character of her love interest or her father or some male character. To make
0: the stakes higher.
2: And they could have done that just with the Vikings severely wounding the Saxons. Right. It was just okay. completely gratuitous. They threw it a gang rape as well, I thought, yeah. to add motivation. Exactly. They had plenty of motivation to go kill Vikings.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about more fun stuff, shall we? <laughs> because there's plenty of fun stuff yeah. to talk about in the script. It's just that... It, it's a bit like the whipping of Barbara and the Crusaders. It's like, holy shit, why? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Why is it there? How is it there? Um. What else? How about the monk? I I will ask you this. I'll ask you both this, since you neither one of you had seen the story before. Mm -hmm. How did you react to that revelation at the end of chapter eight, that they'd walked into another TARDIS?
2: I did not see it coming.
0: You did not see it coming. I thought it
2: was. I thought it was appropriately prefigured that when I read it, I thought, "Oh, that that makes perfect sense." Because mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a nice gag before that he was using the sarcophagus as his desk. Um, but I did not realize it was, certainly did not realize it was going to be a furnace. Okay. Well, I mean, you... obviously he was a time traveler. But right.
1: Yeah, yeah, I kind of felt the same. I was definitely sure that, like, this guy is a time traveler, but I wasn't quite as certain that he was,
0: you know, the same boat. So that came as a complete surprise. That thing. came as a <clears> surprise.
1: <throat> I mean, yeah definitely understood, yes, this guy is not here. Uh, he he came here on purpose. He is a time traveler, but I did not immediately realize, oh, he's also a time lord.
0: Oh, okay. Or yeah. Sure. yeah, and you notice something else, too, that Nigel Robinson doesn't do pull an Ian Martyr on us. He doesn't say time lord. He doesn't say yeah. Gallifrey. In mm-hmm. fact, the only there are a couple of updates. One is when, and I love the scene, too, the monk is needling the doctor about his TARDIS and saying, Oh is your yeah. yeah, yeah. chameleon yeah. circuit broken? I can fix that for yeah. you. It's not called a chameleon circuit until nineteen eighty one. So, so there's that, but at least that fixes it into the terminology.
1: Yeah. And I think I think once that happened and you got a little more of that ribbing between the two of them going back and forth, it was like, Okay, this is this is fun. This is this is actually quite hilarious mm-hmm. seeing yeah. the doctor finally get his due. The race
2: build-up from Ian and Barbara would try to make a little jabs at the Doctor, but they never committed to follow through. It was yeah. always yeah. a mental, oh, he's at it again, he's always going to be this way. And then Stephen's able to actually pull some off <laughs> because he actually knows about aerospace. So so far, yeah. my only exposure, exposure to Stephen being this uh, brief bit, I love the idea of an astronaut being a companion because mm-hmm. the Doctor can't gaslight him. Right. He's <laughs> like, you know, right. Supposed to be a high school science teacher, not actually a person who's practiced yeah, engineering from century, or, yeah, so or flown a craft or, or that sort yeah. of thing. But you know, uh, Stephen, he, he can, The doctor can still smack down Stephen, but then the monk is an entirely different level of verbal jab. And oh yeah. I I thought that built up very nicely.
1: On well, seeing their their like mental chess game that they had going on, you know, always thinking seven steps ahead. Right. That was really what was interesting, kind Mm -hmm. of seeing that level of complexity, you know. Sometimes the the way the doctor gets out of these sticky situations is he always has, like, a backup to the backup to the backup (laughs) to the backup. Oh, yeah. And so having someone that was that as well. Is able to do it, It was not
2: clear at first that the monk had any any such well laid plans. He was more no. flying by the seat of his pants.
0: Really is. I mean, constantly making,
2: being foiled. Uh, I love that uh, this monastery was turned into a bed uh, and breakfast. Yes. He's got the doctor in one room, the Vikings in <laughs> <are> the other, <laughs> wounded Saxon somewhere else. Who there's <laughs> Probably more visitors demanding to get in. I like that every scene that you see him, there's one anachronistic object. Yes. The wristwatch, the first aid kit, the phonograph. At one point, he looks back at the monastery and there's some kind of light bulb or light, but right. not of that time then that was. Very nice, simple three-figurements, and by the time we got more information about the monk, I found it very interesting Mm and
0: funny. By the way, speaking of which, the scene where the doctor first realizes that something is wrong, when he hears the monks chanting, and suddenly, and he realizes he's listening to a record, I was wondering how well that translated to the page for you, because I thought Robinson did a good job of it. Oh, yes. Yeah. You knew it immediately what had I happened. I knew exactly, exactly
1: what that sound was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, the only thing that could have been worse is if it had been a skipping record.
1: Yeah, like a, <laughs> yeah, like a record scratch, someone hitting phone crack,
0: Exactly.
2: Well, um, in terms of restraint and not over indulging of florid language, um, instead of uh, show, don't tell, a lot of times... Uh, he also goes with uh, smell, don't tell, which I really like. So a screenshot I've got here is mm. the monastery seemed to lack that unmistakable unmistakable smell of places of worship and study, the sweet aroma of incense and the fragrance of well polished wood. Instead, this place reeked of the rank smell of decay. Mm. And early on, he's describing the beach when they first land the TARDIS on the beach and the sounds of the birds and the waves and. There's two or three places where there's a really nice, short, sonic description that really puts you in the scene. Hmm. But it doesn't go on for two or three paragraphs like certain other authors we shall not mention have done. <laughs> Which also can be quite enjoyable as well, but it's a nice change of pace, because we've read some porn. Who could you ever mean? Rate,
0: so. Who could you ever mean? Well, but now? both
2: of those have their place, and they're right. both, both of those styles have been done well, I think, in oh, this yeah. series. absolutely. But similarly, it thrives you know, periodically sound, you know, the, the, the grating of the, the portcullis colours dropping and then the 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 sonic distortion on mm-hmm. the phonogram that are very simple but it, very effective I thought. Okay.
1: I was just thinking about whenever the monk got back to the monastery and like all of this stuff was gone. Just that like moment of like, oh fuck. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> God. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it it just it was a yeah. good echoing of that feeling yeah. earlier in the book, whenever you think that the TARDIS has been just away by the ocean. Right. Like, yeah. they didn't come back to that until maybe the But that was a good start. simple
2: peril to have nagging at the back of their minds the entire yes. time. And when we get that back to the beach, is it going to be there or not? Right.
1: Well, and yeah. us as readers not realizing mm-hmm. that... And, yeah, once the doctor finally beats it back up with them, it's like, oh, yeah. it's fine, It's there. It's
0: fine. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> Way too happy <laughs> to good. watch out.
1: Um, but looking back at that just now, um, I realized that the monk got back to the monastery on Christmas Day.
0: Yes. Yes he did. Hmm. So Which was is not, not in the original.
1: Was I, I just I know there's a thing with having the Doctor <laughs> Who Christmas special, so I just I love the, the little like links to continuity <laughs> things in, in the series. Yeah. It's, like,
0: it's not until the next year that they'll actually have an episode on Christmas Day.
1: So that was again something added after the fact, just like a little
0: kinda. In fact, the Doctor Who Christmas special is very much a modern thing. Okay. It's very much modern. Who they never had them before. The BBC always did, but they were more an internal thing for staff and uh, stars. But huh. as far as actually doing a standalone Christmas episode, Doctor Who never did that until David Tennant's first a new story. Series. Yeah. Okay. Which is, uh, it's nice. It's just. A few of them seem a little, to my mind, stretchy, if that makes sense. Oh, they're they're absurd. Yeah. But (laughs) it's a Christmas
1: gift. Like, sometimes you love it, sometimes you hate it. But it's a gift, so you
0: take it. Exactly, and I'm looking forward to this year's yeah, for obvious reasons. But
1: because it's always, don't they usually have like really high viewership? They do. And it's always something that people are going to be talking about. So whether
0: Well, this year's will, for sure. Definitely. Probably the highest viewership, I imagine. But, but you're right, this is like a, the Doctor's Christmas present to the monk. It's right. like, here's an itty-bitty TARDIS that you can't get into. Mm-hmm. Enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. And it's a change from the script, because in the original the monk manages to get back to the monastery fairly quickly, right after the events have happened.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so to have that stretching of time makes a lot more sense to me, I think.
1: I enjoyed that, though. You know, eh, I'm not gonna go back just
0: yet. <laughs> I and
1: mean, he just takes a little crazy detour, you know. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, he thinks he can still see what he wants to see and see the routing of the Vikings and all that, and uh Yeah. It <clears throat> doesn't happen. Yeah. Not a bit of it.
2: Which also established him as not evil. he not gone off to kill someone. It's just right. that plan didn't work. He's going to go see what he can see. He's on vacation now. Yeah, maybe he can fix it. <laughs> maybe not. I'll go back to the to my tour to see what I can do next. Right.
1: It's yeah. It's unsuccessful. Not necessarily evil, but definitely mischievous and meddling.
0: Yes, meddling. indeed. <laughs> That's always it—the meddling monk. He's always described as the meddling monk.
1: Like, yeah, he's just messing with things just because he can. Yep
0: precisely. Even when he's working with the Daleks. It's like, oh... uh, (laughs) Almost kind of like the Joker. A little bit, except not nearly as psychotic or... uh, I almost said homosexual. uh, Homicidal. I I don't know about Peter Butterworth, to be honest, but... Yeah. There's
2: some very good throwaway lines about the monk. You know, murmuring some rather unecclesiastical curses to himself (laughs) under his breath, or he... uh, found for the doctor, a habit made of the itchiest, coarsest material that he could find. Yes. I, I thought everything about him was was delightful. Very different, obviously, than Mr. Dill from the last
0: book. Oh yeah. Um. Yeah. Thank God. Very
2: different in characterization. Very different in the elaborate detail. was <laughs> <Yes. laughs> Exactly what way it was funny, but I, another very good funny character that I thought was not overdone.
0: Kind of gets me that John Peel gave Morton Dill more characterization then Nigel Robinson gives to Stephen Taylor, who is played by the same actor, <laughs> that this really was an opportunity for him to give them mm. a backstory. Vicky needs a backstory, too. In fact, we had to talk about Vicky. But yeah. I actually
2: like that uh, Stephen doesn't have much backstory here. He's just allowed to walk around and do things and talk. And I thought that was a better way yeah. to introduce him. Okay. We don't get much backstory and detail in the monk until he's made about eight appearances, I think, <laughs> darting around doing things. Then mm. we see more of what he's up to. Yeah. And so I thought that having Stephen and Vicky walking around sniping was better build up to interest in characterization than yeah. just giving us info load right away. When is he supposed to be from? I missed this.
0: Oh, I'm going to guess. I'm thinking 26th century. I'm not quite sure. So after Vicky. A little bit after. Okay. In fact, is my miscellany up there on the bookshelf right there behind me? It, it is. <clears throat> tell you what. Pause. Okay. <laughs> Pause. And I will check to see. Because this does have descriptions of all the characters. Uh, son of a bitch. If I can find mm-hmm. it. Oh, come on. Why are they not done in such a way that you can just get to them? It doesn't say. Ah. Oh. Kevin Scott and Mark Wright, how could you... I know one of you follows us on Twitter. How could you not tell us where Stephen is from? Because I can't remember. <clears throat> hey, but at least they, they mentioned Hi-Fi. They mentioned him, yeah, they gave him his own little uh, sentence. A eulogy. Yeah, but no. there's nothing. Now, but I know somewhere in the book, they do say something about the fact that Stephen and Vicky are... A little separated in time from each other, but it doesn't really say the date. No. Okay, but
2: that, no, that, that that was what I was That's gathering that they were from a similar
0: yeah.
1: He's yeah, time. He, He's like a little later than her,
0: but yeah, not. But it also becomes so not a plot point that they never refer to it. In fact, the way they act with each other and with the Doctor, you would think they're from contemporary England rather from rather than from the future.
1: It's mm. the
0: weirdest thing. And it gets even weirder when it's contrasted with the next two companions we're going to have because it's like, oh, okay. But then by this point, characterization's kind of paper-thin anyway.
1: Right, it's more about the story. It's more about what's actually happening instead of getting to know. Right. But he's the first person...
2: That I have seen among the Companions, who's not intimidated by the Doctor at all. At no, least not at the beginning. Not at and all. And like I said, he has a look, he has a background of expertise none of the others have had. Exactly.
0: Yeah, he certainly does at that. And yet, it is so rarely called upon, he really does just kind of become the heavy at times. Except for the one time when he sings. But, yeah, we'll, well get you there. you know.
1: The
0: jocks played the leads in high school, so. <laughs> Exactly. They sure did. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things that are kind of odd. You'll probably notice, for instance, that um, Robinson is forgoing updating the whole thing about fixed points in time, or Whitaker's notion that history on Earth is fixed because it's the history of whoever's traveling in the TARDIS and therefore they can't affect it. And here it's boiled down to the same point that it's boiled down to on screen, which is that the golden rule of time travel is that time travelers should never interfere in the course of history. If that's the case, then what the hell is the Doctor doing?
2: <clears throat> the Doctor even talks about that. Oh, you shouldn't interfere with history. I thought you know, it was a joke for the readers, but he does it all the time. Yeah. But I exactly. didn't think that the author took a position yeah. on that. it was Vicky's comments and the Doctor's comments and the monk's comments on whether or not you could change these things and should try, mm-hmm. but I didn't think that there was an authorial dictum on how it actually works in the
0: universe true and in fact their later conversation about the possible ramifications of what the monk does that's very much robinson it's kind of hinted at in the televised version but you don't get the doctor saying you have no idea what's at stake here you two will not exist anymore we're Earth as you know it, yes. yes. as yes. know it will not exist anymore. The universe as we know it will not exist anymore. Well,
1: and I like that point that he made, you know, you don't know if one of your ancestors yes. was a Norman. And, and if a person,
2: ance- one of whom's ancestor was a Norman, I'm yeah. grateful that the scheme didn't work. Where I am.
1: And same here, yeah. It's <laughs> just that idea of, like, one person <laughs> that died that shouldn't have mm-hmm. could completely yes. change exactly. everything.
2: But we don't know if he's right. We don't know if it's like DC yeah. Universe where there are certain fixed points and you can't change the important things, like you couldn't change the battle-based things, or if it's something that you could change. Or the doctor's, the doctor's thoughts on it, but we don't know if he's if his assessment is
0: accurate. Exactly. It's only until the 80s and then in uh, the David Tennant story about um, Pompeii that it's firmly established that there are points in history that if you try to correct them, they'll correct themselves time will reach right in and just change it so that it happens much the same way anyway. Because time in the Doctor Who universe... Those books behind you, the Virgin (laughs) books, the ones that don't have any marking except for the shit logo on the very bottom of the uh, spine, in the Virgin books they establish both time and death as entities, much in the same way that Neil Gaiman considers Mm -hmm. them. And the doctor is time's champion. He is there to correct the wrongs that have gone on in her domain that she cannot herself change. Okay. Which is just, it's bizarre, but it's, you know, myth-making on this gloriously big scale.
1: Yeah.
0: We're nowhere near that yet. We're still in 1966 in Line Grove Studio with the glaring lights (laughs) on a Friday night and trying to get done before 10.30 before they shut the lights off. And we're not necessarily talking about the ramifications of time travel yet.
1: No, it hasn't got so philosophical.
0: No. Robinson at least gives us that, and I'm quite grateful for that. Yeah, it just doesn't depict it on screen in the full horror that it deserves, I think. Much like the rape, but we're not getting back into that again.
2: That's no. okay. I'm, I'm perfectly cool with not having an explicit rape. <laughs> <I'm> yes, <afraid. laughs> me do not need more detail. No, You no. omit it entirely.
0: Not in the children's series. Oh, anyway. um, You had some difficulties with the religion,
2: you Well, said? I have far more notes here that I could possibly uh, go over, and most of them are in my handwriting, which is hard to read. But <laughs> well, before you get there, though, uh, one thing I liked about uh, Stephen is he would have totally uh, figured out the Funhouse Dracula right away. Yeah. I like this exchange on the beach where the doctor says, an authentic Viking helmet. And Stephen says, maybe. And the doctor says, what do you think it is, a space helmet for a cow?
1: <laughs> and
2: Stephen says, it could just as easily be part of a costume or, or, or from a, a, a pageant or a film set. And uh, Doctor says, rubbish. And Stephen says, well, no more than your idea. So once again, <laughs> he is someone who can come back at the Doctor, but I like the idea that there's someone a little bit more skeptical uh, on board now who actually will follow through on skepticism yes. instead of be verbally quickly defeated by the Doctor over and over and over again. I don't know right. if that will be developed more in future stories. So and It's I think a new it will, element.
0: Yeah, I think it might be because Stephen... Doesn't enter the TARDIS, beholden to the Doctor to get back to his own time. There's nothing about, can you get me home again? He doesn't really say it.
1: I mean, he's off that planet. He's just
0: happy to be off planet. he must
1: stop there anyway. Now yeah. alright, 1066, why not? I could stay here, <laughs> I
0: don't care. He does say that at one point, doesn't he? Because he thinks, oh my god, I'm stranded. Would it be so bad? Or Yeah, it's you know. like,
1: I mean there are at least people here. Yeah. There are at least humans here.
0: And he's genuinely touched by the... Um, oh, the Saxons, right? I keep getting the, the factions wrong. He's genuinely touched by the Saxons being so generous of their food and such when yeah, they have so little yes. of it. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, oh, okay, these these are true people. I I need to bear right. them in mind.
1: And kind of the idea that people think that people back then were so savage, but like, I mean, they were still people. They still, yeah. you know, had their own culture and ways of doing things. So.
0: Exactly.
2: And yeah. what does Robin think about it? Which is, could go more in one oh, direction. Oh, yes, please. Right, so well, Most of what I'm about to look at is from the second chapter, the Saxons. So we've got, uh, start with a full page of description on Edith, which is very unusual in this book. It is. She actually gets a lot more expository characterization than really anyone else, I think. I agree. But I, I don't understand what he's trying to do. So the first page, uh, we have to be assured that even though she is really old at 30, she is still attractive. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Fine, it's 1988.
0: Um, well, I think it's more that 1066-30 was, you know, going on dead.
2: It was not written in 1066. Yeah, no, I did understand. I did like, you know, setting the scene of, you know, these people are going to be significantly more weather beaten for their age than modern people And fifteen years of being. marriage. She's been yes. married
0: since she was fifteen. Well, so she's an old maid. She
2: is shown <laughs> as a woman who is very beaten down in circumstances, not necessarily in personality, right? But yeah. in a situation where she's kind of a chattel wife in in some ways, yeah. And so we have this description here mm-hmm. of and her husband Walnuth was not a, was not a bad man. Sorry, the, for a person with a list. Woolneth, and then an S. Oh, brutal, I, know. I know. And her husband, Woolneth, was not a bad man. He had always cared and provided for her. She had no objections to serving his every whim and indeed waiting on him hand and foot. Eve believed it was a woman's place to be her man's helpmeet and to care for him as best she could. A mm. couple of things. And then she stumps wearily. <laughs> over well, so... It says, help meet, and usually that's rendered "help mate," but the KJV 1611 actually says, help meet. Yes. There's actually not a comma in there, but it is, you know, she used to be a help, implied comma, meet her husband, etc. So that's not an accident of language. Right. It's a pretty specific reference. And we are shown that a uh, woman who's not outright evil, like there's no scene where he's slapping her around, but right after the gang rape, he's saying, oh, well, you know, my wife will come up here and nurse my friend here back to health. She's not doing anything. And he's shown as quite gruff and and insensitive. Next page we have, um, uh, she breathed a sigh of relief as she recognized Eldred dressed in his rough tunic she had never liked him, distrusting his swarthy bearded looks and his narrow eyes, which reminded her of an otter. That's a, I've, I've seen a lot of otters, and I've never met one quite like well, that.
0: Well, we've met a yeah. lot of otters, but, too, but in different contexts. But here's yeah. where we're going. But he was one of
2: her husband's friends from the village, and as such, deserved her respect. Not nice. that she thinks that, but it seems to be the author's perspective. So is he saying that this is a positive thing or not? Because later on we're told that this is an era when a woman with a child can walk from one end of the area to another and be completely unmolested and the Vikings seem to be bringing in a type of sexual violence that was not present there. So is he presenting Edith as this very put-upon woman who has a lot more... Perception and intuition and assessment of the situation, and she's being credit for, given credit for, by the Saxon men around her, or is she sort of the butt of the joke as the doctor, you know, just um, sees her as this simple woman who brings him beer, (laughs) brings him brings him mead. Oh, she'll bring. I I hope she'll bring venison this time, etc. Or is this shown as sort of an an Eden of gender relations, wherein? She's very subservient, but as a reward, she lives in a, a society where she's very protected and is not in danger of sexual violence until outsiders come in, which is a hell of a position to take in 1988, let me tell
0: you. Yeah. And
2: he doesn't seem to come down definitively in any obvious way on any side of it, but he keeps playing with it. Right. So later on, another rather remarkable use of language we have is when Vicki and Steve do you ever call Steve or always no, Stephen? Always oh, Stephen. Or sort of verbally sparring. Don't call and, me
1: Doc. Yes, <laughs> I, I,
2: I, I actually like. I was actually asking. Like, is he supposed to be American? He keeps calling him Doc. Some of yeah, his right. some of his speech is written in a way that seemed more nah. American. Um, but uh, let's so see that's
0: here. here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he's so manly. Yes. Of course, we
2: we are told that. So, uh, the, uh, Stephen gets off a, a good sick burn on the doctor. Mm-hmm. Something like, oh, so you can't really control it at all, right? Where it goes, you know, with the use of that. And we are told that Vicki, who had been sniping at Stephen earlier with her sarcastically, respond to this, she was very impressed, and respond shamefacedly. And this is, now we're in the New Testament, so help me, this KJV Old Testament. And, uh... Now we're in the epistles. Oh, Hang on. There are screenshots. Oh, my. It's either 1st or 2nd Timothy here, um, where we've got, And like men are also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. I have never, ever in my life seen the word shamefaced or shamefacedly outside of discussion of 1st Timothy.
1: Really? Maybe it
2: exists in the wild and I just haven't encountered it, but that was a hell of a word choice a few pages after. Help me. Really? Really? So I thought, okay, so they wow. establishing that Vicki is not really happy with Steve until she can respect him verbally, and is she going to be, like, happy if he puts her in her place? But that's not how their relationship develops. There, There's a time later when he says, something like, oh, she's just a scared girl, but then he's proven incorrect. Like, she was right to be cautious about right. something. There really was someone in the woods. Later, she really comes back at him about, I think... I know you think I'm just a scared kid, but I'm not, she right. proved not to be. And I don't know what the author is getting at here, with this use of language, because he does not follow through on saying, this is a better world that Edith lives in, wherein mm. she is completely subjected, but she is protected, which would be wow. one dark vision. But it's not a story of liberation either where she's actually the smartest one in the room mm-hmm. or just making the best mm-hmm. of a good circumstance. And similar with Steve and Vicky, this is not a tale where Vicki like body slams Stephen at some point no. or another. It's not a story where he, you know, deals a good brutal verbal put down and then she's in love with him or something like that either. True. Robinson keeps seeming to play with these ideas, but he doesn't come to a conclusion. And it's like a new ro- ship named Robert E. Lee. In some ways, like, are you, are you boosting the Confederates or are you boosting slave rebellions? A couple of books back now, but he's intentionally playing with this very pointed language and doesn't come to a conclusion and this is my recurring frustration with several of the books, I Mm -hmm. think, play with very serious real-world themes and then don't come to any sort of conclusion that you could be proud of or ashamed
0: of. I would agree. Listeners, That silence that you heard there for a second (laughs) was me realizing abdually that this this was exactly the sort of conversation I always envisioned for this podcast, and realizing that I am woefully unprepared to answer any of those (laughs) questions that Allison brought up because I honestly don't know. I didn't look and I hate to say this, I didn't look at the text quite that closely. And I didn't realize that those That those underpinnings were there, and I'm betting they must be, because Robinson is... Yeah, you're right. Robinson knows what he's talking about.
2: Sometimes it's not intentional, but those two particular words Mm -hmm. were like neon lights. These are are the themes he's going to play with, and he's not going to either support or slam those positions, it seemed like, in a way that is internally consistent. Maybe that's my frustration.
0: And maybe that frustration comes from the fact that it's the script he's working with.
2: Yeah, and I don't know how much of any
0: of this is in the original script. Very little. In fact, it's really difficult to say anything about Edith in the script, except that she's violated in some way, and that she springs back from it. She's a very cheerful woman, and she seems to enjoy waiting on the doctor and waiting on her husband. Uh, Yeah, and I think maybe this is Robinson trying to make it interesting for himself because he is trying to uh, at the same time as he's trying to bring some modernistic attitudes towards it, he's also realizing those aren't quite in place for the time or for the story and yet Edith is the most interesting character outside of the monk.
2: But never comes to life in that He's characterized inconsistently, but not as internally conflicted. You're right. She is consistently addressed by the Doctor, the Monk, and the Saxon men as either woman or my dear. I think the Doctor and the Monk call her my dear. There might be a third individual who calls her my dear. They do which that Which every... ordinarily <clears throat> would be a shorthand for, all right, this guy is being condescending. Yeah. But once again, it's not commented on as, oh, the Doctor is being a dick again. And it's not... Something she reacts against. It's so something that she accepts and finds unremarkable, but not in a not in a way that's obvious cultural commentary of oh, this is what she's used to. Right. It's a very different time and a very different culture, a very different world. It's just hanging there in the air, waiting for some sort of comment that never comes.
0: Yeah, and I have to wonder.
2: It's <clears> like <throat> people who watch, you know, only the first few episodes of Mad Men, and would, well, there are a lot of people who seem to have watched Mad Men and decided this is the coolest guy in the world, that misogyny was awesome, and if my dad got away with that, right. why can't I? I know that's not the majority that's opinion. A... But, you you can't watch that show and not come to some conclusion about the gender relations. I
1: mean. No, I agree. I
2: and agree. I, you say, I, Arguably, the editorial view of the show is very much to expose the racism and misogyny when it's portrayed.
1: Mm.
2: I, I I feel like I could never settle on any sort of authorial perspective in this.
0: Because it's very easy to accept it at face value. What's on the page, what's on the screen, mm-hmm. looks like what it looks like. It's racism, sexism, mm-hmm. and it doesn't look like the producers are saying, this is mm-hmm. bad, mm-hmm. we're better than this now. Right.
2: but Or this is good, but it's also too much pointed content... To just be an off handed oh, this is how things were in that time. Yeah. it's yeah, kind of morally neutral. So it's an uncomfortable, sort of wheezy mashup of the three. A little bit. And I can't shut up about it because I can't reach it. <laughs> I can't reach any satisfactory conclusion no. of what he's doing. But no, he's there's way too much evidence that something is being done. I just don't get what it is.
0: I'm still trying to find out if Nigel Robinson is on Twitter. Okay. Because <laughs> ideally this is what I would love. I would love to interview him for Underwater Menace. And we have enough time to find him somewhere, Mr. Robinson, somewhere. Um, and I'd like to talk to him about it, exactly that and oh. say, did you realize that this was something you were putting into the book or was it just I was rushed. I was doing the Terrence Dicks thing, trying to get this out in two weeks, and yeah, those are all subconscious things. Because even, they could be there subconsciously too.
2: Well, were I to expect to ever encounter the author, I would have prepared much more carefully. But I did come with my copy of 50 Great Short story, Stories from Bandon Classics. And this, <laughs> like, so we've got the short story here, The Man of the House by Frank O'Connor. Oh, Lord. And there's a comment in here. Oh, God. Alright, so a ten-year-old boy has told his mom, who was very sick, to do something. And, and she does it. And the, the boy says, it's a funny thing about women, the way they'll take orders from anything in trousers, even mm. if it's only ten years old. That kind of comment demands a follow-up. Yeah, this is a this is just a child's perspective. This is the author's perspective. This is a perspective the author is going to refute. And same, that that is resolved much more in that story. But that line kept coming back to my, uh, to mind because there were so many instances. Like it's like 30 instances yeah. of Edith being told to do something in a very either gruff or glib manner, and then the situation
0: just dies. And you're right. And it is problematic in that it never really resolves itself in any meaningful way. And even less so on screen. So I'm not sure if Robinson was trying to unpack it and just managed to... Well, maybe he's trying up. to figure that
2: out. He
0: may be trying so. to figure it out. Um, and again, Mr. Robinson... I'd really love to talk to you about this, because Nigel Robinson wrote the second of those virgin A new adventures, and the original four new adventures have um, biblical, biblical um, things. Yeah, The first one's called Genesis, the second one which he wrote is, no, he didn't write that one, that was Terence Dix. Dix wrote Exodus, and Nigel Robinson wrote Apocalypse, and then Paul Cornell, whom you're familiar with, wrote Revelations. And then he never wrote another book for it. At least, I don't think so. There may have been another one there that he wrote. I seem to recall that there was one. But, yeah, that same range is going to also spawn Kate Orman, who is arguably the most feminist writer of Doctor Who in either fandom or in mainstream press ever. And I'm wondering how she would take a story like this And saying, okay, you can't really change script much, Mm -hmm. novelize it. Because I would like to see what that would do. I think we'd get much stronger Vicky, much more Mm -hmm. buffoonish Steven to some degree, which would be fun, and we might get some resolution of what's going on with Edith. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Though somehow I doubt it, because Edith kind of ends the story at the same place where we find her, except she's been assaulted in between.
2: But it's been a day or two, so
0: she's over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back teen Yeah. Lord. Um <laughs> how do we get back to the funny? <laughs> because there there is told you it was dark. It is very dark. That's the problem. <laughs>
2: one, one more bit on religion, because that's what you asked me about. Yes, I And I, did. And I, I did. violently entered <laughs> <yanked> the conversation
1: <laughs> them, okay. uh, It's
0: so, fine. I, like, so, a, a I like From, from, from where the John
2: Travelers have uh, just uh, been treated um, uh, hospitably by the Saxons. Yes. They had treated them with selflessness and genuine Christian charity. It was something unheard of in his or Vicky's own more enlightened centuries. There. God be with you.
0: Yes, and I asked in my notes, is that a slight against organized religion, mm-hmm. or is it just setting us up so that Stephen has a genuine reaction to their wish for safe travels, because he's mm. unused to it? Yes. And that's hard to figure out, too.
2: Well, and that made me wonder again, it's going back to, to a concept of a more, this is a more utopian Britain pre-invasion, uh, pre-feminism, right. or is it just simply about their hospitality?
0: But, right. It, yeah, it, that's, a, that's a hard one to get around. Because he does specifically characterize the charity as Christian. And that it doesn't exist in Stephen or Vicky's time. More enlightened time. Which means it's, you know, superstition, fables, kind of the way the new series treats it. Hmm. The new series tends to treat organized religion as something to be scoffed at. The, I think of the 12th Doctor saying, oh, by all means, let's get the Americans in here and pray all over everything. It's like, yeah, from an outsider's <laughs> point of view, that's what we do. Which is truly sad. Yeah. But yeah, it is hard to get, it is hard to figure that out, especially since Stephen doesn't have any more progressive attitudes towards women either.
2: But Stephen is pretty handily smacked down by Vicky. He is. That, that's, that was a more linear progression of their sort of mutual contempt and each of them having a moment of respect for the other when they accomplished something or got in a good singer that Agreed. made more sense because they have a somewhat equitable relationship in some ways and that he is older and understands aerospace, she has already been traveling with right. the doctor and is much more experienced with that situation. So that even though she's a teen, she can hold her own with him more than you might otherwise. Yeah, it's expect. more a
0: brother sister relationship.
2: Well and it once again we have the idea that Vicky is verbally trying to imitate the way the doctor verbally dominates people and right. so she's still learning how to do it. And I, I love when writers try to show mm-hmm. this show that sometimes she's successful and sometimes she's not because she doesn't understand
0: how it works. Yeah. And I think Vicky is much better in this book than she's really been in any of the books yeah. because the, the other books focus so much more on Ian and Barbara's interaction with the Doctor that when they bring up Vicki at all, sometimes it feels just kind of thrust upon you like mm-hmm. in the Space Museum. Yeah. Like everything else is thrust upon us.
2: But Vicki imitating the Doctor is pretty common. More yes. More than her actually in-
0: interacting with Very him. much so.
2: I like that there was a mention um, that the, the doctor stopped to think that Barbara would have remembered all this stuff. She yeah.
0: would have been able to fill in the details. About. That was
2: a nice shot. And that's not
0: on screen. That's very much Robinson putting that in, which is really lovely. Yeah. And that little bit where he almost says something to Ian at the very beginning of the book, and he's like, oh, they're gone. All right. Yeah. And also, that bit where they. They hear a noise. They think a Dalek has gotten into the TARDIS. Yes. The Doctor's raising his cane. Yes. Vicky's got a shoe. And I
2: thought the Doctor was going to throw a coat on the eye stalk. Yes, and
0: that actually happens on screen. And Robinson's like, not realizing how completely ineffectual their weapons of choice could be against the Dalek. It, it's just a lovely moment. Well, he didn't have any more of Barbara's sweater. No, <laughs> no. And a coat. And that's, or that's her like big bouffant to... Uh, Keep them to blind them, <laughs> to blind them exactly. Dalton, we haven't let you talk much.
1: <laughs> um, I'm I just uh, going, going back to kind of the, the idea of the relationship of Vicky and Stephen versus Edith and some of the other men. Um, I don't, you can't kind of just all this talk of like progression and enlightenment and the difference of the periods. Um, I wonder if that's kind of like a conversation of progress. You know, Mm -hmm. Vicky and Stephen being from, we were saying like the 26th century-ish versus you know, people in the 11th century, 1066. Just how societal norms have changed, Mm -hmm. relationships have changed. Like you said, you know, Stephen and Vicky kind of being equals in a way, Mm -hmm. whereas Edith is kind of subservient and like lesser than, um, it's still important. I mean, she's still like, what, they wouldn't do shit without her. No. Um. Yeah. Yeah, so that just has song been would be it.
2: more emphasized in the end.
0: Right. Um. But they do give he does give her that lovely scene at the very end where Edith is looking out mm-hmm. at the, the sea. She mm-hmm. doesn't get that on screen, and I mm-hmm. love that code. Yeah. I'm yes, sorry. Yeah. We interrupted
1: you. Um, but yeah, so that just, that just has me thinking about, yeah, just larger things maybe at play. Um. Mm-hmm.
2: Edith is kind of—I wouldn't say self-hating, but very self-effacing in a way that maybe is contrasted with you more directly and consciously than I realize. Because Edith initially attacks the doctor when he comes to the hut. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know who he is, and she apologizes profusely, falling all over herself it's like half a dozen apologies. Yes. There, saying, "Oh, it's really fine, etc." She actually refers to it as, you know a woman's harsh welcome, and I'm so sorry, and Vicky does not apologize to anyone for anything, no. ever. Yeah. <laughs> and I hadn't thought of the, that in juxtaposition before, so maybe that's a more direct comment than I yeah, did. Yeah, so it's,
1: that, that's just kind of, as we're, we're talking about, you know, even like the the Biblical passages, you know, mm-hmm. um, just, yeah, the, that kind of duality. You know, You have these two female characters that are played similarly, but also in very different ways. Exactly. Um, so there's.
2: Well, then there's a very directly say after Vicky makes a comment to one of the Saxons, like, no, we should go do this other thing, that um, Edith is shocked that, yeah. that no yeah. Saxon would ever speak to a man like that. Right. But then once again, there's not follow through of, and she thought it was great, or she thought it was the worst thing she'd right. ever right. seen. She, she, just, like she just noticed it. I'm shocked. Well, I guess different. it just is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they also
1: kind of talk about how. Did, wasn't Edith kind of. She was kind of mystical in a way. She felt like premonitions. Yeah, yeah. She had, she had the feelings. Fight. Yes. So, At
0: one point, she sees Hallie's comet, for yeah. instance.
1: So that kind mm-hmm. of thing with her and the feeling she was getting mm-hmm. about uh, mm-hmm. the doctor and Vicki and, mm-hmm. and Stephen, mm-hmm. I kind of felt as like a yeah, like a mysticism in a way. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a nod to mm-hmm. um, uh, druids and right. things right. like that yeah. that would would have been kind of contemporary. Mm-hmm.
2: So is this a story of story that's done about the Doctor wherein he thinks that a person is very simple-minded or buffoonish or something, but they're actually very bright or they've actually accomplished quite a bit. We see him giving Ian a really bad time because I've, Ian seems to be the author insert character in all the ones that I've read right. so far. So it's kind of the writer working out their issues on the page it seems like with <laughs> that authority that figures times. of their youth is what it feels like at times. But would that be a typical characterization of the doctor, where maybe he is very dismissive of someone not realizing the way in which they maybe save the day by being very insightful about a situation.
1: Mm.
0: That's a good question. What do you think?
1: I don't know. I feel like that sometimes there is a lot of, of uh, appreciation for the minor characters. Mm-hmm.
2: I've seen more of the doctor realizing, oh, this person's actually
1: helped us a tremendous amount. Right. And, yeah. Um, yeah. and I, I think it really e- even in <laughs> exactly. I think sometimes that that goes to show, like, kind of uh, Doctor Who is a larger kind of thing that we we keep talking about these ideas of these large events that we can't change that shape history. Right. But really, what this is all about is tiny people doing small things mm. that have a larger impact. Exactly. So, like that is going on too and that that's mm-hmm. that's fantastic i love you know right. um i've been seeing a lot of stuff come up lately about um real people being characters and how mm-hmm. you know when you see characters in a book or on a film they look like that's a character but it's like everyone in your life is a character that's if you name. amplified them to the amount that you're doing on tv screen or the film screen or in a book even mm-hmm. if you gave that much characterization to anybody but, they would be a character. Yeah. So, I think that's really great to see, like, mm-hmm. all of these small parts, you know, the ensemble. I right. Think, um, being kind of, like, picked apart and, you know, applauded for.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think it says something about, what passes as character development in Doctor Who of this time, Yeah, that the Doctor is making that realization, mm-hmm. but it seems like the writers, the s- script editors, all that, aren't really even noticing it. It's just kind of... It's, just, it's natural. In <laughs> it. Yeah, it's accumulating on the character like a residue of humanity, in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um, because by the time we get to the new series, the Doctor's character does change, but it changes within a, um, an incarnation. Yeah, and that's going to start happening. Well, huh. it'll happen with the second Doctor. It'll really happen with the third Doctor. I just watched his last story the other night, and I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this is the beginnings of that." By the time you get to the end of Tom Baker's era, you see him changing as a person. The Davison Doctor realizes a few times. Oops, I need to do things differently. The Sixth Doctor never realizes anything at all. He just kind of blunders around. No, that's not true at all. The audio version of him becomes much, much quieter and much more reflective than that boisterous character in the hideous clothes that we get in his first story. And the Seventh Doctor, Christ Almighty. The change from the on-screen Seventh Doctor in his first story, where he's just a buffoon and a clown... To that last new adventure, which takes place on the Doctor's home planet, and we find out everything about the Doctor's past, which then has to be negated by later writers, it's just a huge, major change. So I think what you're saying, to some degree, is what passes for development on Hartnell's part. That
2: makes no sense.
0: Though it will come and go, as the stories (laughs) are written by different people. Given that this original story was written by Dennis Spooner, the script editor, and given that this book is written by a former editor of the series, that makes some sense. It makes some sense that both of them would say, let's do something with this, even if it's just the Doctor thinking, something's wrong with her, but I don't really know what it is, so I'm not going to talk about it. And pulling back from that. To me, even, that's character development. Yeah. His banter with the monk. Brilliant. Having Steven and Vicky, even though they have characterizations they are like paper thin, having that banter yeah. between them is brilliant. So yeah. By the way, did anyone notice it's the first time we've had a bodily function in a Doctor Who book? Someone took a piss?
2: I missed that entirely.
0: Yeah. Beginning of chapter 6, <laughs> one of the Vikings relieves himself. And you're like, oh, how interesting. We have not had toiletries <laughs> in Doctor Who before, in story order anyway, and I'm surprised Ian Martyr didn't put something like that in the book, have a you know character take a pool, right. since he tried to introduce fellatio into that one book. Oh, you weren't here for that one, were you? I
2: sadly missed that, apparently. <laughs> I liked the uh, concept of the monk as cosplayer. Oh, <laughs> and he really yes. put a lot into his character, so when uh, Stephen and Vicki approach the monastery, Stephen wants them to kind of just you know, get on with it and everything. The monk looked hurt. There wasn't any, uh, any need for Stephen to cut him down, especially when he was in full flow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and he had material prepared, and this guy was not letting him get through the full monologue.
0: Exactly. Actually, no, you were here for the rescue, weren't you?
2: Yes. Oh, then you were here
0: for the fellatio. I don't remember it at all. I
2: must have How could you up. forget
0: fellatio? Well,
2: I guess it wasn't very good. No, I guess
0: <laughs> <not>. <laughs> Oh, well, if, it, if Ian Martyr had been allowed to keep it in the book, it would have been excellent fellatio, I'm sure, but <laughs> graphically detailed. By the way, did anyone think the monk's last words sound a lot like I'll get you next time, Gadget. Next time. Yeah, you just <laughs> needed a cat. Yeah, it has that feeling to it, certainly.
1: Any, he... which is why I thought that he possibly could have been set up to become the master. Oh yeah, that, that kind of thing.
0: And certainly, he yeah. is. Well, technically, he's a recurring character.
1: Yeah.
0: But yeah,
2: he recurs just one time. Just or? the
0: one time. Just the one time, and then once in the comics, and he's mentioned in one of the uh, Virgin novels, and that's it.
2: I feel like it would be a great character to play with in comics. So when you have yeah. little, little room, non canonically.
0: I think so too. Um, anything else?
2: It really was most damnably cold and damp. Uh, it said of the monastery. You would have thought the Lord might have judged it fit to install a central heating system somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. yeah so, sort of Vicky identifying with the doctor mm-hmm. as a mentor has an exchange with Stephen once again, where Stephen says, um, oh, what are you so scared about? And Vicky says, I am not, sc- or, I am not scared, she retorted indignantly, and struck treating me like a child. <laughs> then, But later on, a few lines later, it says, "Vicky had learned many things from a doctor. One of them was getting her own way. And I thought that was a yeah.
0: nice
1: yeah.
0: development for her. Definitely. Hair flip. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> there you go.
2: Well, but that... Vicki is actually better at verbally coming back at Stephen the is.
0: I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. I really do hope that Jenny can join us for the next book. Because I want to get, I want to hear your impressions always, Dalton. But given that the next book is vilified, the next story is vilified for the way it portrays sexual politics. I'm desperate to hear what both you and Jenny have to say about the that episode in the
2: book or both
0: both because they're both written by the same person mm-hmm. Came back to write his own book, and you'd think twenty years on, he might have improved it.
2: <laughs> no, <laughs> no regrets, apparently. Okay. No regrets,
0: as we always do. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, and then follow up with their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book. Yeah, ibid. Yeah. You already know what to do. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to do it, but there you go. The average rating for this story... I'm just sick of reading the same damn paragraph every Thank time I'm you. getting no result. That's the <laughs> definition of insanity right there. The average rating for this story, out of five stars, is 3.69. Higher than The Chase, amazingly. Here's some sample reviews. Mel gives it four stars, saying this was another good target novelization. Nigel, she knows him well... Put a lot of effort into what everyone was thinking and their motivations to round out the characterization. I thought he did a particularly good job with Vicky, and I enjoyed how much he was exasperated with Stephen. I liked the story it was, as it was an interesting mixture of historical and shadowy figure, whatever that means. More like a, a modern pseudo-historical with people from outside the time causing trouble. I'd come across the meddling monk before in later Big fin- That's right. They bring his character back in the Big Finish audios. He's played by a different actor, obviously. But yeah, he does come back. But I like the fact that he wasn't really evil, just kind of naive. I also thought it was quite shocking to have a Doctor Who adventure with rape and murder. Though done in such a way that you could overlook what happened to the poor Saxon woman <laughs> if you weren't aware of such things.
2: I mean, you mean like it's child-friendly? Not aware yeah, of those
0: things? Yeah, I, I, I guess. that You'd uh, have to get, be a very
2: stupid child to not get that. He talks about look of lust in the eye. Yeah. Anyone over... Well, that's
0: what I was talking about with Nigel Robinson's kind of doing this tap dancing act, mm-hmm. trying to depict it, but not. There are certain word choices he could have used to make it much more explicit.
1: That's I would have been good. one of those kids that wasn't so I would have too.
0: In fact, I, I hate to admit this, it wasn't until I was watching the story again in my 20s, mm-hmm. after seeing it as a teenager and reading the book, that I was like, oh, that's what happened.
1: And that says so much more that we could talk yeah. <laughs> about.
0: But. but instead, we should talk about Matthew Good, who addresses this even further, giving it three stars and saying, okay, read, though a bit violent. There is some quite extreme sexual violence for a Doctor Who book, not explicit. And no one seems to actually care about the woman affected in the sense of giving her support for the horrors she has just been through, just to seek revenge for damaging the Goods." i know it's a patriarchal society of 1066 england but at least the doctor could be more compassionate and not so interested in need it's true but i think that's also that the doctor doesn't have the vocab for that he honestly and how do you depict that on screen if you're trying not to depict the thing that's actually happened don't worry some violent vengeance is served towards the end hoorah sarcasm otherwise (laughs) enjoyable (laughs) And finally, our old friend Daniel Kukwa gave it three stars and says, finally got around to this. One of the few Target novelizations I've never had a chance to read. I'm uh, I'm sad to say it's the most disappointing of Nigel Robinson's four early years adaptations, primarily because of its lack of ambition. His novelizations of The Edge of Destruction and The Censorites, even The Censorites, display a gorgeous talent to broaden and deepen both plot and character. Um, Dalton knows what we're talking about here remembers that book. His novelization of The Underwater Menace turns a piece of B-movie schlock into something exciting and fun. Yeah, it is something to look forward to. But The Time Meddler is primarily a straightforward transcription with a few bits and bites thrown in. Perfectly readable and professional, but it doesn't reach for the glory of the other Robinson novelizations.
1: Perfectly readable. Perfectly <laughs> readable.
0: <laughs> so do quality
1: printing, very little skipping on the space. <laughs> right? Exactly, yeah, that's, that's going to be my my legible. My, my, my <laughs> new, legible. That's going to be my new go-to. Perfectly <laughs> readable. <laughs>
0: so don't. What about you? Uh, what would you give this album? <laughs> uh,
1: I'm probably sitting there like a three with this. Okay. Uh, I don't hate it. I don't think it's the best thing I've read. Um, yeah, perfectly readable. Um, I, I I'm glad that all of the reviewers pointed out the the rape as as a WTF moment right um so at least the readers are picking up on how messed up it is um at least the adult readers now um right yeah so
0: all right I mean, so yeah. three stars yeah. three not not the worst no, okay how about you Allison
1: I'm
2: go with two point five which is higher on my usual range yes. than you would expect. Uh, than
0: I would expect for sure. Um
2: even even with my profound I don't even want to say unhappiness with it just restlessness about and
0: discomfort.
2: About well figure out what you're going what you want to do and commit to doing it. Yeah. But at the same time he's working with interesting interesting themes. I just want him to actually develop them, but they're more interesting themes than are usually than might usually be brought up at all. And I really liked the restraint and economy. This sounds like the the, the faintest of praise, doesn't it? <laughs> no, but the restraint and economy and the structuring of how the the monk was presented, I thought, was a, a textbook example in a positive way of how to present a mo- an almost one-off character in a way that's interesting and engaging and has a lot of humor and color without a single word more than is necessary for doing mm-hmm. this exposition. Okay. And so, yeah, higher than I maybe I expected. Okay. Like I said, I actually overall found it to be a very nicely balanced proportion of
1: storytelling. Alrighty.
0: Yeah. And as for me, I'm not going to go so far as Daniel Kukwa and say that this is disappointing. I will say, if you're comparing it to the narrative heights of the censorites, you're bound to be disappointed. <laughs> Or if you're comparing it to Edge of Destruction, yeah, you're going to be disappointed because Edge of Destruction is definitely his best. It's been a while since I've done Underwater Menace, so I can't say. This one, I was both pleasantly surprised by, and also, I had that same feeling of discomfort. I was like, come on, Doctor, she's hurting. Say something. But since that doesn't happen on screen, he can't do it. And that's leavened, thank God, by the, the meddling monk being there and all of that lovely comical stuff. And
2: maybe our discomfort is success. Maybe that's what he was
0: going for. That may be it. And hopefully, Mr. Robinson, I can ask you soon, because until then, I'm giving this book three stars. So yes, I agree with Dalton. And definitely I would be it down to 2.5 myself. Weren't for the fact that I still like this book. In fact, I like this book a bit better than the televised version, which is a really good story, despite, you know, uncomfortableness. But yeah, it's not his best to be sure, but he's working with better and more sensitive material than, say, the sensorites. Jesus, the sensorites. God, not the sensorites. Not again. Not again. How
2: much I've missed not knowing what the hell you're talking about. Yes, well, get used to it. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well played.
0: And thank you, follow Time Travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Notice how I'm just going right on. Next time we travel back to Galaxy 4, that's the name of the book, not where it's set, by the way, to check out William M.'s novelization of his own script from 1966, in which he depicts a society dominated by women. In nineteen sixty six. With the results that you might expect. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target, Book Club Podcast, all one word to no spaces. You can visit us at our eternally pristine subreddit at Reddit.com forward slash R forward slash DW Target BC. It's not even a joke anymore. Also feel free to watch videos of our first twelve episodes, thirteen episodes as it turns out. Um, my video, The Rescue, that got those uh, copyright strikes, they went ahead and let it oh, It's up there. I didn't know this until last week. It's there. Kay. So you can see it. But I'm not doing any more videos. But you can see the ones that I did do at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash umperdalek forward slash videos. Follow us on Twitter. We're at DW Or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn. Not on Podbean right now. Not until I pay you the bill. If all else fails, you email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. And Dalton, happy birthday. It's my birthday. It is indeed. If Thank you, you for bonus, joining us.
2: please send Dalton pony for your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: so, would like a pony to feature Yes,
0: there we are. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye.